Well, good morning, church. It's always good to be with you. Uh, Last week, we started a brand new message series focused on the story of the Exodus. We're calling it uh, Better Days. I think part of that's just because I I know that I am personally longing for better days, and I assume that that you have that same uh, stirring in your soul at this time as well. Uh, And last week, as we checked in on the, the people of Israel in the land of Egypt, we found that things were complicated. We found that while God was there and present, nobody's talking about him, nobody's mentioning him, and it it was so hard to see God and his presence and his work in, in the beginning of this story that it almost felt like it wasn't worth looking for him. But we we spent time throughout our our focus last week trying our best to look carefully to see how God was in fact present and at work. And we found that he was busy keeping his promise, keeping his word to the people of Israel, to the the, the promise that he made to Abraham generations before. When when he told Abraham, who who at that point had never had a child of his own, he, he took him outside and he said, look, I want you to look up at the, at the stars, Abraham. One day, that's how many descendants you're going to have. That, that's how many descendants are going to bear your name. The, the dust on the earth, Abraham, that's the kind of, of multitude we're talking about. And, and so while there were a lot of things that were, were challenging and difficult in the first handful of verses in the story of Exodus, one thing we do see happening is God's people growing in number and multiplying. And yet there's, there's another part of the promise that they're having to wait on that, that had to make it difficult for them. Because God not only talked about this, this multitude of, of descendants, he also talked about a future place they could call home. A promised land that was going to belong to them. A place where they were going to belong. And so part of them has to, to feel, you know, on one hand, like, where is God? Doesn't he see the struggles that we're going through, even though we're, we're growing? And then on the other hand, they have to be asking, what's taking God so long? I mean, when is God finally going to act to, to help us not only grow and flourish numerically, but to take us to that place, that promised land that we can call home? Well, we find that while the, the people may be wondering when God is finally going to do something, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, as he watches them grow in number and in power, he starts to think, what, what am I going to do in response to this? I mean, how much time do I have left until things get out of my control? Because while it's important to him that the, the Hebrews, the Israelites that are within the borders of Egypt are growing, and that, that is making, by extension, the, the nation of Egypt powerful in a world where more and more people meant you'd have bigger armies and you'd have more people to work fields. And, and he doesn't want to just run them off. He still has to figure out a way to, to control them. And, and so he does what leaders throughout history have done when, when they start to realize that they, they need a workforce, but there's a group of people that are growing so fast it's, it's threatening them and challenging them. And he, and he carries out this strategy of ruthless slavery to oppress God's people. And he doesn't do it just on his own. He speaks words of oppression that, that have a hearing within the hearts of, of the other Egyptians who are also nervous about eventually being outnumbered. And so they, they do what they can to carry out systemic slavery 
And it works. While the the people of Israel are great in number, they lose the social power they have in the land of Egypt. And yet, while Pharaoh may have the power to make the Israelites' lives more and more difficult, more and more miserable, God has the power to make their lives more and more meaningful. Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they, they can make the Israelites' lives harder. But God is committed to continuing to make their lives matter. Right? And, and how does God do this? How does God give them lives that are, while difficult, still meaningful? Well, he, he gives them the gift he, he always gives us when, when we're longing for lives that matter. You know what he gives us? He gives us one another. He gives us community. He gives us family. He gives us not just a place we can long for that we might one day be able to call home, but he gives us a, a people that we get to call home. And so it's at this place where God is still working to bless them. He's still present, but they're still waiting. And things are still getting more and more difficult that we find that Pharaoh, he looks at the situation and while he is able to do some of the things he wants to do and he's, he's able to get some of the control because they continue to grow, because they continue to flourish as a community, they're still a threat. And so he's going to make things even more difficult. If you've got your Bible, open up, or a Bible app, open up to Exodus chapter 1. We'll, we'll be reading together starting in verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the, the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women aren't weak. That's, that's what's here, right? They're not weak like Egyptian women. They're vigorous. And they give birth before the midwives arrived, before, before we're even able to get there. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. And then Pharaoh decides, I can't depend on, on the, the Hebrews to control this population thing, so I'm going to turn to everyone else. So he turns to all of his people. It says, every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Can you imagine a darker situation for God's people to have to try to deal with? Pharaoh's done what he can with slavery, but it's not enough. And so he moves beyond oppressing God's people to trying to cut them down at the very source of life. You know, he thinks about it, and, and he does a deadly kind of, of arithmetic, and he starts to think through, well, I, I still need them to, to work the fields and, and to do all the hard labor that, that the Egyptians don't want to do, but I, I also don't want them to, to rise up against me at some point. So what, what can I, well, I could, if, if I, 
if I stop the boys from being able to, to not just be born, but to, to grow up into men who might one day take up arms against me to fight for their, if I can just stop them, then maybe, maybe I can, can get all of the, the upside of a, of a forced group of people who are working for me, but I don't have to worry about them ever fighting for their own freedom against me. And so he comes up with this horrible, horrible plan to call these, these two women, and they're not the only midwives. They can't be, right? The, the people are growing at such a rate. They have to be the two chief midwives, the people who are, are responsible for all of the other women in the, the Hebrew community who help usher in babies into the world, right? That he, he, he finds the two that are most important, and he brings them in, and he decides that in order to carry this out, he's, he's going to ask these women to basically trick all of the pregnant mothers who end up having baby boys and act like every single one of them are stillborn. That's what he's really asking them to do. To betray their own people. To betray the God who they believe in and they long to serve. That's, that's what's going on here. And, and you've got to think about the, the difficulty that these two women are, are facing and what's at stake. Because if they end up doing what they've been commanded to do by Pharaoh, if they're able to then turn to all of the other midwives who work with them and they say, this is, this is what we have to do. This is what we've been told to do from the most powerful man on the face of the earth. We can't hope to resist him, so we've just got to go. If they end up doing that, they're going to wipe out all of Israel in just a couple of generations. And so everything's at stake here. For the future of the people of Israel, for the future of the people of God. And so they have to wrestle with what they're going to do. Last week in the first part of, of chapter 1 of Exodus, we find that when, when Pharaoh speaks words of oppression to his people, they, they automatically turn into acts of oppression. But here we find that when Pharaoh speaks words that are intended to bring death, we discover these two Hebrew women who commit acts that are intended to bring life. Right, The tables are turned. The Egyptians follow orders better than the, the Hebrew midwives do. And I think we've got to wrestle with what it is that gives these two women, these two slaves, the courage to stand up to Pharaoh. The courage to stand up to, to the most exalted man on the face of the earth. And I think we know, you go to verse 17, we know what gives them the ability to stand up to the most exalted man on the face of the earth because they believe that their God is exalted over the earth. Right? They're able to have the courage to, to resist this king who has the power to crush them because they're even more certain that their God is strong enough to protect them, to save them. They are because of this, more afraid of disobeying the king of heaven than they're afraid of disobeying any earthly king. Doesn't it remind you, if, if you've ever heard the story before of when, when Peter in Acts is hauled in front of the, the authorities and he says, you know, I have a choice to make right now, whether I'm going to obey God or I'm going to obey you. 
I'm choosing God. This is the same choice that these Hebrew midwives make. Against all odds, it works. And I think you're supposed to be shocked that it works. And I think you're supposed to kind of laugh at how stupid Pharaoh is. You know, he's powerful, but he's, he doesn't have a lot of power in the uh, intelligence department. Because he hauls them in and he says, you tell me why my plan's not working. You know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to deal with all these boys who are going to grow up to be men. Here's the joke, right? He's so focused on the threat that men might pose him, he doesn't even think about the women. He doesn't see them coming. He never would have believed that they would have been the source of the resistance. And then they give him this story that it's not, it's not the whole story, and it's kind of offensive the way they tell it. We're trying to do it. We just can't keep up. And by the time we get to the house, they've already given birth. Sorry, what do you want us to do? And Pharaoh lets them walk out, scot-free. And he says, you know, it kind of makes sense. Those Hebrew women are strong. I guess that's what's happening. It's shocking, right? You're supposed to read this story and, and, and laugh. You're supposed to think, okay, here's this battle. And, and according to the wisdom of the world, we know how it should go. You've got the most powerful nation on the face of the earth at that time and its leader on one side. You've got a couple of Hebrew midwives and a bunch of other slaves on the other side. Who's supposed to win that battle? How's this supposed to go? Well, it doesn't go that way because this isn't just any story that we've come across in, in our lives or in history. This is God's story. And all it takes is two people who are brave enough to trust in God to make a stand, and it works. They choose God, they choose life, and they win. But there's even more good news yet to come in the next chapter. So if you still got your Bible, let's look together at Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. I cannot imagine hiding a newborn for three months, right? Afraid that every time in the middle of the night that he started making noise, everything could fall apart. But when she could hide him no longer... She got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. And then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. She's watching over him. She's not just going to see if, you know, a crocodile is going to find the basket, right? This is, this is not that kind of brother-sister dynamic. She's watching over him because his mother can't. And then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank, and she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. And then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter. So she gathered the courage to go speak to the daughter of the king. Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. 
So the woman took the baby and nursed him, and when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. In the first part of what we just read, the the camera's kind of focused on the fate of the entire future of the people of Israel, right? But as you shift into Exodus chapter 2, it's like the camera zooms in and focuses on just one family, one mother, one baby boy. And, and I think the reason that this happens is it's easy at times, I think, to hear about something horrible that's taking place in the world, and we kind of keep it on this huge level so we don't have to think about individual faces and lives and what happens to them when people who are in positions of power oppress them and take advantage of them and threaten their lives, right? It's, it's hard to zoom in close and then to have to witness what it's like, the kinds of decisions that have to be made. But that's exactly what the storyteller in Exodus does. And, and it reads in some ways like a fairy tale, doesn't it? But it's far greater than any fairy tale you and I have ever heard or read before because this story isn't a fairy tale. This story doesn't tell us about what might have happened or what should have happened. This is a story that tells us what actually happened and what actually still happens. Brothers and sisters, because God really does work this way. God's always striving to rescue us from the worst things that you and I have to face in this world. God is always striving to rescue us. I know there are times it's difficult to wait on that rescue. I know there are times we're tempted to give up, just like the the Israelites had to be tempted every single day to give up, we have to hold on and keep going because our rescue, our rescue is sure and it's coming and it's closer. So we hold on. And it takes a lot of people in this story. It takes a lot of, of women in this story. The people that Pharaoh had underestimated, right? Because it's not just the two midwives. It, it then takes the baby's mother who knows the risk that she's taking on. She knows what's supposed to happen. You you think every mother and midwife in in that Hebrew community didn't realize what Pharaoh had said had to happen, that that every single one of their baby boys was immediately upon taking his first breath under a death sentence? They knew it. And they knew what would happen to the, the people who would try to resist it. I mean, sure, there was this conversation with Pharaoh once that went in a way that nobody would have guessed, but that doesn't mean it was going to continue to happen that way. And if Pharaoh didn't need a particular mother who decided to break his law, they could all guess exactly how that was going to go. But she's overwhelmed with a sense of love. When she looks at her son, it's a love that gives her the courage to make a stand. It's the same stand that Shifra and Pua make against Pharaoh. It's the same choice to choose God, to choose life. And God honors that choice. Every time you make the choice to protect life, to bless life, God honors that choice. And it's not just the mother, right? Then it comes to the point where she has to entrust little Moses to God in a way that had to break her heart. She, she creates this little basket. Can you imagine the care she took? And it's clear to me that what the, the storyteller in Exodus is trying to remind us of is not Exodus. It's actually Genesis chapter 6. This isn't just a basket. This is a little ark. 
And God's people know that God has the power to use an ark and water to bring salvation. That this, this isn't just something she's doing because she has to. It's a way to pray. It's a way to ask God to do what only God can do and to trust when there was no other choice. But then God not only works through his mother, God works through his sister who has to be a child herself. Who's walking along the banks of the Nile to try to to do what she can, which isn't much of anything. But she's there to see, she's there to witness how God's going to show up. And that's exactly what happens. And you know how God shows up? In In a place again where nobody would have guessed Pharaoh's own family, his daughter, who sees this this basket and then sends a female slave to get the baby. And once she sees it's a baby, she immediately sees who he belongs to. And just like every other woman in this part of the story, she refuses to do Pharaoh's dirty work for him. She may not know the God of the Hebrews, but she knows the difference between right and wrong. And she knows the difference between choosing life and death. And she chooses life, and God sees it, and God honors it, and God blesses that decision. Five women. All of them living in an ancient world where they have limited social standing, limited social power, and because of those limitations, nobody sees them coming. Right? They're heroes, but they're unexpected heroes. I mean, you think about the historical events we've just read this morning together. They begin in the darkest of all places and in in a handful of verses, we get to a place of unexpected light. And it's there because these unexpected heroes choose the life-giving power of God over the death-dealing orders of the Pharaoh. Brothers and sisters, we, we have a God who loves to partner with people who no one else expects Right? He loves to partner with people that no one else sees coming. And, and he uses those people in that partnership to save the day, to save not just the day, but to save the world. I'm, I'm not going to tell you her name. And I'm not sure that it matters because we don't even know so many of the names of the unexpected heroes in the story we just read, right? They're not even mentioned at this point. Some of them will be given names later. But I want to tell you about this woman in my life I met 20 years ago now when I was enrolled in a graduate chaplaincy program at Hendrick Hospital. It's part of my, my training to become a minister and as you know, one of the, the things that's really important in in ministry and in the life of the church is for us to be the living presence of God to other people, especially in the most difficult moments of their lives, which for most of us happens at the hospital. And I I didn't have a lot of experience with that, and so I ended up taking that course more than once. Not only because there were teachers there and mentors there to guide me, but because it gave me access to patients 
It, it gave me practice. It gave me time where I could spend, where I, I developed relationships with folks. Sometimes I only met them once. Other times I met them a handful of times. But, but the question I had was, how was I going to connect with people to help them experience the presence of God when their life was, was difficult and trying and challenging? And, and I, you know, I'd, I'd get a list every single day. It was three days a week. I almost never knew any of the names on the list. And I would start to just go down whatever hall I had been assigned that day. And I was always filled with anxiety and nervousness about what I was going to encounter and, and whether or not I was going to be able to bring comfort and peace to somebody. I don't know if you know this about me, but I don't just naturally exude calm. <laughs> the first time I saw her, she was, she was in a, a room in the long-term care floor. She'd already been there for almost a month. That, that's a long time in the hospital. She, she was wearing a white bandana because her hair was falling out, and she was wearing a light purple robe because she hated the way she looked in hospital gowns. And she invited me in and, and just had a way of opening her life up to me that very first time that, that we had a conversation. I felt not anxious or nervous, but I felt like I belonged there. I felt like I was home. She, she told me that why she was, was there it had to do with, with her digestive system and there was all kind of problems and she was losing weight. She couldn't keep anything down and they, they were trying to figure out exactly what was going on with her and they were trying different treatments and the ones they tried so far weren't, weren't really working. And, and I could see just how much effort it took for her to... to to spend any time talking about her difficulties because she immediately wanted to get past explaining to me why she was there, to talk to me about how God was using her while she was there. She was constantly trying to figure out the names of the patients who were near her and she was writing them get well cards and she was praying for them. She was giving encouraging notes to the nurses and the doctors who were trying to help her and hadn't quite figured it out yet, and they were feeling frustrated, and, and, and they didn't know how to help her, but she was constantly trying to encourage them. She told me that she had a directory from her church membership, and so when she felt up to it throughout the day, she would call various people from her church family who she knew would be sitting by the phone and just needed to hear a friendly voice. I visited her three days a week for three months. And like everybody in the hospital, she had good days and she had bad days. All of them were hard days. But even when they were difficult, no matter how, how challenging things were, she always wanted me to come and visit with her and pray with her and dream with her about what she could do to help somebody else. She had this amazing outlook on life. She was truly thankful when she was able to eat something and keep it down. 
when she was able to walk down the hallway of, of the hospital she was in without having to stop and rest halfway. She talked about all the people that she wanted to help once she was able to get out of there. People who needed warm clothes to wear and good food to eat. And, and she talked about children who she knew needed someone to teach them how to read and listen to them read. And she talked about lonely people who she wanted to visit because she was afraid that nobody was watching over them. And I will never forget, I wrote this down. And I came across this, this thing that she said to me all those years ago. And I can hear her, I can hear her voice. She said to me one time, if God blesses me with time to help them, Jared, I'm going to use that time like it's pure gold because it's priceless. She, she wasn't talking about getting out of the hospital so that she could do all the things on her own bucket list. She was talking about trying to get out of the hospital to help someone else. Well, eventually they found a treatment that started to work. It was a, a profound answer to our prayers. And she started to, to look better. She started to put some weight on. And so I came in one day to visit her, and I, I went to the chaplaincy office, and they had my list, and they had a note from her that said she, she definitely wanted to see me because she was getting to go home. So I, I went to see my, my other uh, people I was going to visit, and then I, I saved her for last, and I went, and I walked into her room, and, and she was, was out of that hospital gown, and she was, she was wearing her favorite clothes, and she was all packed and ready to go, and the moment I walked through the door, tears filled her eyes, and she said, I'm so ready to go, but I'm going to miss the time we've had. And she gave me a hug, and we said a prayer, and I started to walk out of the room, and she called out my name. She said, Jared, and I turned around, and she said, I hope, I hope that, that I have blessed you just a little bit as much as you've blessed me. And I walked out of that room, and I, I had half a hallway to, a, to an elevator, and I kept thinking. I mean, I was in my I, 20 years old. I kept thinking. I, I, I need to say something to her to help her know how much she means to me, how much she has changed my outlook on life, how much she has helped me think through the ways I could be, I could be there for other people, even when I'm struggling and when I'm, I'm facing difficult moments like what she was bearing up under. But I, I didn't know how to say any of it. I didn't know how to tell her that I was there. I was supposed to be the minister. I was supposed to bless her, but she's the one who, she's the one who changed my life. I mean, another way to say it is I was supposed to help her, and she saved me. And as I hit the button on the elevator, and I, I got on, and the doors closed, and I saw her come out of her hospital room, I realized that I had, been, I had been in the room of an unrespected hero, right? somebody that I didn't see coming, somebody that, that I didn't expect. God, we have a God who loves to partner with people like that, people that we, we just don't expect nearly enough out of because we don't know how to. And he uses those people to save us, to, to rescue us, to give us a new Outlook on life. I mean, that, that woman struggled for months to hold on to her life, and she kept choosing life. And not for her, her sake, but for, for the sake of all the other people whose lives she wanted to help. 
Brothers and sisters, if the story at the beginning of the Exodus is trying to say anything to us, I'm convinced it's telling us that in a world filled with leaders like Pharaoh, people in positions of power who try to get control and are willing to sacrifice everything to have it, who who end up speaking words or creating acts that the only way we could describe them is it's death dealing. We believe in a God who's more powerful than any power we've ever seen in our lives, and he asks us. He begs us to find the courage to choose life, not just for ourselves, but for other people, to bless their lives, to protect their lives, to find a way to make their lives, even if we can't make their lives easier, to make their lives more worth living. And if a woman 20 years ago, who I've never forgotten, managed to be an unexpected hero from a hospital bed that she could barely get out of for three months then you better believe that God can and will use you. That each one of us have moments in our lives where we are called to be heroes. We're called to stand up and choose God, to choose life. And we don't give ourselves enough credit. We ride ourselves out of those heroic moments because we don't think we have what it takes because we all suffer from spiritual imposter syndrome. And I'm telling you, You are meant to be an unexpected hero for someone, somewhere. So find the courage to do it. Find the courage to be it. Choose God. Choose life. And I promise you, you'll win. We're going to sing together now. And and as we do, my prayer is that we find the courage to be who God asks us to be. For the sake of people in our world who need rescue. Let's stand and sing together now.